Would you stand, please, and let's sing together. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I love to sing your praises. I'm so glad you're in my life. I'm so glad you came to save us. You came from heaven to earth to show the way. From the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I love to sing your praises. I'm so glad you came my life. I'm so glad you came to save us. You came from heaven to earth to show the way. From the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Lord, I lift your name on high. King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. Lest I forget thy thorn-crowned brow, lead me to Calvary. Lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me. Lead me to Calvary. Thank you. Be seated, please. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet, who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. By the transgression of my people, he was punished. Oh, the depth and the riches of God's saving grace flowing down from the cross for me. 
there the debt on my sins by the Savior was paid in his suffering on Calvary. Oh, the depth of such wonderful love flowing boundless and full and free. And the debt for my sins was all paid in his suffering on Calvary. Oh, what marvelous mercy, what infinite love, what immeasurable grace I see. By his blood I am cleansed, I am happy and free through his suffering on Calvary. Oh, the depth of such wonderful love, flowing boundless and full and free. And the debt for my sins was all paid in his suffering on Calvary. The first work of art that referred to the crucifixion of Jesus was this graffiti. It's called the Alexamenos Graffito. It was scratched into a wall on the Palatine Hill in Rome about 200 A.D. Uh, you might see it a little bit better in this enha enhanced drawing. It depicts a man looking up at a cross on which a naked man with an ass's head has been crucified. The inscription says, Alexamenos Sebete Theon, which is relatively bad Greek for Alexamenos worships God. We venerate the one on the cross, our Lord and Savior. But most of the world looked at the crucifixion as so much silliness. Imagine worshiping a God who is not even powerful enough to protect himself from being crucified. Crucifixion, by the way, was the most insulting, obscene way you could kill a person in the first century. Imagine worshiping a God who didn't have enough dignity to avoid the cross in the first place. A pretender? A clown God? Imagine worshiping a God who was executed as a criminal. Who is this? Is this the devil? What better way to insult such a pathetic conception of God than by drawing him as a humiliated figure dying in a most humiliating way? On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Stumbling block to Jews. Foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Oh, the old rugged cross, so despised by the world, has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. We see in the ugliness of the cross the beauty of the love of Jesus who died for us, who died in our place. As Isaiah said, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus endured such humiliation and pain and shame because he loves us and he refuses to allow us to be condemned. We see in the weakness of the cross, and the cross is a display of weakness, arms and legs pinned by nails to a stake, splayed open so that everyone can see every iota of suffering, writhing, panting, crying, dying as crowds stand around and poke fun. But in that weakness, we see the power of God. The power to absorb every last bit of Satan's evil. Every last ounce of human hatred and cruelty. The power to turn the other cheek. It always fascinates me that the gospel writers, when writing about the scene of the crucifixion, never tell about people being struck by lightning. Or tell about people being killed by hailstones and God's wrath and anger. And you notice that that never happens. Instead, Jesus receives all their vindictive bitterness toward him and even prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. We see in the shame of the cross the glory of God, the glory of absolute faithfulness. Jesus never giving up on his Father, trusting him all the way to death, all the way through resurrection. Our Father himself, faithful, faithful to us, as he looks upon his one faithful son suffering and allows it so that we might be justly and fully forgiven. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. 
I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. There are so many ways to look at the cross. There are so many aspects of the cross that are worthy of our contemplation. That, that's why I suppose there are so many paintings in art history that are called crucifixes. There's paintings of Christ on the cross without any sort of or without much of a background context so that, <clears throat> so that we can focus on Jesus on the cross, to see Jesus in his unique and individual crucifixion, so that we can engage the cross and contemplate the meaning of the cross and the way that the cross affects us. Like this painting here from Leon Bonnet. Uh, you can see the tension, the stress, the torture. Just look at the legs of Jesus, knotted, straining. You can tell Jesus is in terrible pain. And his chest, he has difficulty drawing breath. This one by Peter Paul Rubens, where Jesus is at rest. It is finished, he said. Everything is relaxed. It's all sort of beautiful because the battle is over and Jesus has won and sin has been atoned for and humanity has been redeemed. You have all sorts of them in the same vein. This one by Zarbaran, those of the, each of them emphasizing their unique perspective on the crucifixion. This one by Velasquez, wanting you to be drawn into the emotion of the cross or the shame of the cross or the suffering of the cross or the victory of the cross, but all of them seeing something just a little bit different, like this one by Reichert that shows the utmost horror of the cross. But I really want to call attention to this particular one, Rembrandt's crucifixion. You need to know that in this painting, the face of Jesus is Rembrandt's face. And in one sense, I'm reminded of Paul's statement, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. But have you ever thought about the fact that when you see Jesus on the cross, you are seeing yourself on the cross? Not... Not suffering for the sin of humanity, of course, but paying the just penalty for your sin. But it isn't you. It's not you on the cross. It is Jesus who is paying the price for your sin so that you can go scot-free. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Well, for me who caused his pain, for me who scorned his perfect love, amazing love, how can it be that you, my God, would die for me, amazing love. How can it be <coughs> you, my God, would cry for me? <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. This is Graham Sutherland's crucifixion. A rather grotesque rendition of the cross. Arms contorted, twisted, limbs bent backwards. 
Sutherland said that he based this painting on drawings that he had made from pictures of dead and starving concentration camp victims. A Christ who identifies with those victims. A Christ who suffers with those victims. You get some of that flavor in the folk art of New Mexico. You'll, you'll go through some of these museums or some of these shops and you'll see primitive carved crucifixes. But they are almost all bent and twisted and skeletal. And in some of them you will even see Jesus as though he is screaming. Go to that next slide, guys. Think about what they're saying. Peasants scratching out an existence on the Spanish frontier, and they're hungry, and they're overworked. They're in danger of Indian raids and droughts and blizzards. When they get hurt, they suffer infections and die. When they get sick, they, they suffer fevers and all kinds of racking pains and die. Their babies die in infancy. Many of their children died at an early age. And these crucifixes say Jesus participates in my suffering. He knows what we're going through. He has experienced it and he cares because he suffers on our behalf. There is a real sense in the cross of God's identification with us to give us hope and to grant us courage and to keep us going on through all those horrible things that befall us in life. It isn't like it was in much of the Old Testament where you sometimes wonder, is God asleep? Has God turned his face completely away and he no longer sees what we're going through? Where is God? This painting is Dolly's Corpus Hypercubus. Uh, if you're an art historian, you probably want to come up and beat me with a ball bat after I give my interpretation of this painting. But I am reflecting on what I see here. Look at Christ's body. Healthy, <coughs> healthy, athletic, bears no signs of torture. The crown of thorns, the nails are missing. Christ is beyond physical suffering. He has never really suffered. He has never really been crucified. His head is turned away. He is floating free of earth. And I'm reminded of those false teachers of John's day who wanted to insist that Christ had not actually been crucified because, after all, God is beyond suffering. God doesn't suffer. God doesn't, doesn't countenance suffering. Somehow God has dealt with sin, but without doing it through the cross. And John indignantly, count, uh, John indignantly counters their teaching by pointing to the historical suffering of Jesus Christ. After all, if, if Christ has not suffered, then there is no hope for us in our suffering. Because when things get tough, God turns away and God leaves and we're left alone. But Christ has been crucified and he has joined us in our suffering. The writer of Hebrews points out in Hebrews chapter 2, in bringing many sons to glory, uh, I'm sorry, bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who has, holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. <coughs> O oh, sacred head now who 
shame weighed down while mournfully surrounded with thorns thy only crown how art thou pale with anguish with sore abuse and scorn how does that visage languish which once was bright as morn what language shall i borrow to thank thee dearest friend for this thy dying sorrow thy pity without end oh make me thine forever and should I fainting be Lord let me never never outlive my love to Thou my consolation, my shield when I must die. Remind me of thy passion when my last hour draws nigh. I shall then behold thee upon thy cross shall dwell my heart by faith enfolds thee who dieth thus dies well one last painting, Crucifixion, 1565, by Jacopo Tintoretto. It's a pulsating, moving picture. You can, you can hear the noise of all of the people doing all of the things that they are doing around the cross. And presiding over this whole scene is the Christ on the cross who is looking down as though he is orchestrating everything. It's Tintoretto's way of saying his will is done. And the flavor of this painting is almost like a motion picture. Uh, everything, everyone is moving. There's lots of noise. And you are right there taking it all in. Look down at the bottom and you'll see that the picture just runs off the bottom of the page. And this is Tintoretto's way of drawing you in and saying to us, you are there. And you know we are. We are there among the crowd crying, crucify, crucify. We are there hurling insults and laughing at the rude comments of the high priests and the teachers. We are there giving consent to his death because we are among the sinners who cried for his blood and our sin demanded his death. But we are there too, horrified, sorry, 
grieved that we caused all this and so grateful that Jesus was willing to do this for you and for me. Would the men who are serving the Lord's Supper please take their places at this time? And would everyone else please stand? And would you recite this confession of sin with me if you can read this? Holy God, Lord most gracious, rebuke us not in your anger nor chasten us in your wrath. Holy, you have called us to come to you. We feel unworthy for we have failed you again and again. We feel like running away, yet you keep calling us. Have mercy on us, O God. Have mercy. Holy God, Father most gracious, rebuke us not in your anger, nor chasten us in your wrath. Heal us from our sin, for we are troubled. Deliver us for the sake of your steadfast love. Our sins trouble us, O God. We are troubled by how they have hurt others. We are troubled by how they have hurt us. Your ways are right, O righteous God. And whenever we have refused to follow them, we have found out how right they are. Have mercy on us, O God. Holy God, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on us for the sake of your Son, who died to free us from our sins. To you be honor and glory. Amen. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my God, would die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that you, my God, would die for me. Come, therefore, all of you who are truly sorry for your sin, who believe in the Lord Jesus as your Savior, who have confessed his name, who desire to live in obedience to him, come eagerly and joyfully in full assurance of faith, for Christ our risen Lord invites you as guests to fellowship with him at his table. Please be seated. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In faith we bless this bread, for it is to us the body of our Savior, eaten up by suffering, consumed by love, offered willingly by him on the cross. In this bread impart to us your grace. Grace to worship, grace to celebrate, grace to live. May believers eat. <coughs> May believers eat and be glad. May sinners see Jesus and be healed. May we all with one voice confess the name of Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, to your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.
bread. Has anyone not been served? If you'd raise your hands, please. One more time. If you've not been served, please raise your hand. Let us pray. In you, God, we put our trust. Let us not be ashamed. For you have poured out your love in our hearts through the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, just as he pours out his life's blood to seal your covenant of forgiveness with us. Accept our praise, Father, as feeble as it might seem compared to what Jesus has done for us. As we drink this cup of blessing, fill us with your grace. Make us certain of our forgiveness. Root us solidly in your salvation as we pursue love and good works along with all those who call on your name. In the name of your holy child, Jesus, we pray. Amen.
Has anyone not yet been served the cup? Would you raise your hands, please? There's a group right here. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm a little quick, I guess. Anyone not yet been served? He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Christ Jesus did not stay dead. To have stayed dead would have meant defeat, that God was unable to do what he wanted to do in the sacrifice of Jesus. If if Jesus stayed dead, then he deserved to be dead, and his death wouldn't have been any, benefited anyone. It might have been impressive. It might have been heroic even, but it wouldn't have been redemptive. If Jesus stayed dead, the devil would have won. Satan would have proved to be more powerful than God. And all the evil that we see would merely have grown and grown, and nothing could be done about it until evil would have been all that was left. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This painting from the Eisenheim altarpiece catches the glorious nature of the resurrection, I think. Christ holds up his hands to show that he has indeed been crucified, and he was, yes, dead. But now he is gloriously alive, and bringing life to all those who believe in him. And then finally... My favorite painting of the resurrection, perhaps my favorite religious painting of all by Piero della Francesca. I call it the matter-of-fact Jesus. There's nothing particularly dramatic in this painting except everything when you think about it. In this matter-of-fact, straightforward way, Jesus has emerged from the tomb. His foot is planted firmly on the sarcophagus. Death's reign has ended decisively. The Christian flag is in his hand. Jesus is ready to conquer the world. And he gazes levelly at you and me as though to say, So what were you expecting? We thank you, our Lord for the hope this meal gives us, that Jesus will return as triumphant king, that the dead will be raised, and that all people will stand before his judgment. We face that day without fear, for you, our judge, are our savior. May our daily lives of service aim for the moment when the Son will present his people to you, Father, and you will be shown to be true, holy, and gracious. With the whole creation we wait for the purifying fire of judgment. For then we will see your face. You will heal our hurts, end our wars, and make the crooked straight. Then we will join in the new song to the Lamb without blemish who made us to be a kingdom and priests. You, our God, will be all in all. Righteousness and peace will flourish. Everything will be made new. And every eye will see at last that our world belongs to God. Hallelujah. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.